So I got to try it. I guess it's like a challenge. Can I get a sneak into the top <laughs> no, five? Okay. <laughs> I, I guarantee you this will be a top 10 podcast. Dr. Jahangir Apu is a world-renowned medical leader focused on innovation to drive healthcare improvement. After completing his cardiac surgery residency at the University of Alberta in 2003, Dr. Apu completed two fellowships, the first in advanced cardiovascular surgery from the Royal Brompton Hospital and Imperial College in London, and the second in thoracic aortic surgery, endovascular aortic surgery, and heart failure surgery from the University of Pennsylvania in 2005. Following his fellowship in 2005, Dr. Apu became a clinical associate professor of cardiac surgery at the University of Alberta, where he founded the Artificial Heart Program, which resulted in Southern Alberta's first artificial heart device implant. From 2005 to 2019, Dr. Apu was an active cardiac surgeon and founding director for numerous programs such as the Calgary Thoracic Aortic Program, which he served as the director from 2007 to 2019. At which point, Dr. Apu left the cardiac surgery world to first mentor at Creative Destruction Lab, a nonprofit organization that delivers an objectives-based program for massively scalable seed stage science and technology-based companies, and second, to launch AIoT Health, a health tech investment fund focused on the application of technologies of tomorrow, in particular, artificial intelligence, AI, and the Internet of Things, IoT, to reimagine healthcare. Jahangir, welcome to the show. Hi, Alan. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me on. So, so I, Jager, oh, go ahead, Alan. Go for it, Josh. I, I was going to make a joke about Calgary, but that's all right. Yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Make your jokes. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, did you notice the pronunciation of Calgary versus Calgary? Calgary, Calgary. I don't know if, uh, <laughs> if that's a common thread. But... Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Subtleties in sort of Eastern and Western Canada, so it still continues. <laughs> So, so, so Jahangir, thank you so much for joining us. I think one of the reasons why Al and I are excited to have you, number one, you are officially our first external guest. So thank cool. you for taking a, a chance on, uh, on this um, podcast. And number two Thanks is... Having me. Absolutely. And number two is you have a, a very, very interesting um, story. Uh, you know, we, we know that physicians are very, very innovative. And physicians are doing all kinds of innovative things. They're, you know, maybe like building medical devices or are doing really unique research. Um, but you actually became a venture investor, which I think is very unique and not a very common path for, for physicians. So um, that got me and Alan particularly excited about bringing you on. So I think our listeners will be, particularly our physician listeners will be very interested in hearing how you did that. But maybe to kick things off, uh, you know, you and I actually met through a mutual contact through a, through Ray, Ray Muzika, for those who don't know, he's uh, an ER doctor turned video game entrepreneur, uh, turned uh, mentor and investor, and he's actually uh, an investor um, at CMSMD. But but how do you know Ray? And we'll maybe we'll start there. Yeah, so uh, Ray's uh, a friend. He's a, he's a very experienced uh, angel investor, and uh, he's, a, he's been a bit of a mentor to me, and he, uh, I think, connected us because he, was, he told me he's sort of, he was looking at a few companies that were interested and uh, asked me if I was interested in an introduction to any of them. So he gave me a list of six or eight of them. And like, as you know, Josh, you've been a big advocate of like this double opt-in. So he like asked you if you'd be interested in introduction, asked me if I was interested in introduction, then wrote a third email introducing <laughs> us. And uh, so that's how uh, I think we got connected. Uh, thanks to Ray. Yeah. So 
Awesome. And Jared, can I give you a funny story about, about double opt-ins? So um, oh, okay. I, I used to uh, write a lot. I have a personal blog and I haven't written probably in two years now. I miss writing. Um, but I actually wrote a blog post about the double opt-in after I learned about it. And I, I, I said it was great. It was important. And I, I started doing it. And then one day I did not follow the double opt-in advice <laughs> and uh, I connected two people on it. And I got called out on it because that person knew that I'd written a blog post about the double opt-in. <laughs> good, so. good for them. Good for them. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's kind of like, that shows some of the value of writing. It actually makes you commit to things and makes you accountable for things. Mm -hmm. And then you can look back and sort of revise it and know where you were at one point in time and see where you are today. But I think there's real value. And I think, uh, you know, I learned that a little bit from you as well. Like that double opt-in, it's, it's a little bit more work, uh, but it's... Uh, it's useful and uh, you always want to make introductions that have some that like I, I always try to make sure there's some reason behind the introduction not just you should meet someone or read or you know tell someone to read this i try to like summarize why it might be interesting to them actually just because there's so much information yeah. there's so much information in the world today that like you need some signal right everyone's like this is great that's great this is important but you need some signal as to why right Jahangir, I'm just curious, um, things like this, like how to give a good introduction or double opt-in or whatnot, are these things that you were learning when you were in medicine or did this, some of this stuff happen because you moved into venture investing and then there's kind of this new skill set or communication style you had to, to get into instead? Yeah, interesting. I haven't thought of that. I guess uh, it's probably like most things in life, like a leopardess in spots, but it's, uh, it's an evolution. So nothing just sort of starts out of the blue. There's always seeds and there's always building up and it's layer upon layer upon layer. Uh, so it's about, I think, understanding what your sensibilities are and what resonates with you. And then you kind of follow more of these things because these things are all out there. It's just a question of who wants to take it on? Who does it make sense to? Yeah, makes sense. I also imagine like skills that you've learned in one area are transi transitioning over to other areas and it kind of builds uh, concurrently depending on what yeah. you're doing. Um, yeah. Kind of on that note, where I wanted to start, at least in, in terms of some of these questions, was, you know, knowing your story before um, your health tech investor side. So um, obviously, I imagine some of your investment work has been shaped by being a cardiac surgeon and, and even before that, um, some of your experiences in the past. Um, what, what, what was it that made you decide to become a cardiac surgeon in the first place? Yeah. Um, so I think I would say a two part answer to that. Like first is a, you know, a didactic answer around like what I liked about heart surgery. And then the second is like the reality of how things happen. Right. And the truth. So, you know, what did I like about heart surgery? I think for me, it was around impact. That's kind of an important word in my life. And, uh, felt like we had a real impact on patients. I enjoyed the fact that patients were happy and satisfied after heart surgery. You have people who can hardly, can't breathe, get into the bathroom and immediately after feel so well. And so much of other medicine was not as gratifying. Mm. And then I liked the, the technical aspect of heart surgery. It was challenging, and demanding, but satisfying. It was kind of like creating some art. And, and as a, 25 year old i kind of like challenging and hard things to do and i think i still do to some extent 
And uh, I think the other thing about heart surgery for me was that there was a lot of interactions with different disciplines. So there's close interactions with the brain and with the lungs and with the kidneys. So as a young person starting in medicine, that really sort of resonated with me. So those are the reasons I like heart surgery. Not necessarily the reason I went into heart surgery is uh, what happened is there was a time in my life where I enjoyed all different types of med- things in medicine. I was in med school. I, kinda, I really liked a whole bunch of things in internal medicine. I like general surgery, all these things. I just finished a cardiac surgery rotation. I enjoyed that. So that was added to my list of things I liked. And the uh, strange thing is I went on holiday with my brother to India. And we were visiting the Taj Mahal. We'd never been. And not far from the Taj is something called the Baby Taj. It's another monument. And India is so packed with people. And for some reason at this baby touch, there was nobody there mm. but this one couple. And it turned out to be the dean of my medical school from McGill University oh, wow. in Montreal. That's and cool. it was this usual, it was this usual doctor, student, superficial relations, you know, questionnaire. Oh, hi, how are you doing? What are you interested in doing? That's kind of usually what you ask a medical student. Yeah. I like this, I like this, all these things. I just finished this rotation in heart surgery, I really enjoyed it. And he said, well, son, you know, uh, once you've seen the light, don't turn your back on it. And uh, I, was, I remember I was just taking off from Delhi in the plane the next day. And I said, hey, okay, that's what I've heard. Wow. So, yeah. So there were a bunch of things I liked at that time. And I was kind of like in a decision-making algorithm process. And I had that interaction. And then I decided to follow it. And then since then, there's been lots I like about our surgery. Yeah. Do you, do you believe in fate in some way? I mean, yeah, that's pretty, it's so, pretty fortuitous. So that's kind that. of interesting. Yeah. So I believe in, like, for me, one of the most interesting definitions in the English language is around the definition of luck, mm-hmm. which is when opportunity meets preparedness. Mm-hmm. So opportunity exists around all of us. Probably, I'm talking about good luck. Uh, you know, every day, mm-hmm. some people can't recognize it. Other people can recognize the opportunity. And then there's another group of people who can recognize the opportunity, but say, maybe another day, another time, not now. And then there's another group who can actually recognize the opportunity and act on it. So I think we all know people who are quote unquote lucky. I don't really think it's a fate or designed thing. It's actually a skill set. Right. There's a reason those people are lucky. Yeah, I mean, some people use the phrase creating your own luck. I think that's probably very similar to what you just mentioned. And I yeah. actually agree with you. You have to put yourself in opportunities to get lucky almost. Um, yeah. So it's about recognizing the opportunity and then choosing to act on it. So I kind of like that definition. Mm-hmm. So maybe it sort of answers your question on faith. No, it totally does. I think yeah. uh, obviously you were I'm in the right place at the right time as yeah. well. And, and that's the luck component. And then being able to recognize that. Yeah. So, Jahangir, you you know you are uh, you know practicing cardiac surgeon for I think was it fifteen ish plus years, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I think um, you know something happened where you know you had to explore something new. Um, do you, are you able to share kind of you know? Yeah, sure. So, like cardiac surgery is really fulfilling, doing lots of cool, exciting things. I was battling a problem with my neck for quite a few years, and the surgery and heart surgery itself just was the problem with. With, uh, I had a herniated disc in my neck. And so that bending of the neck just became a problem with what I do. And so after a few years of going through a variety of different sort of options, it became clear that the right thing for my own health long-term was to 
not be in that position where I'm always putting that stress uh, on my neck. And that's allowed me to, to, to be a lot healthier now. Yeah. Okay. So, what would you uh, say is the, the, the most difficult part about leaving surgery and, and venturing off into something that's completely unknown? Um, yeah, I think there's two things. One's the past, the other's the future. So in the past, it's like, you know, your relationships that you have with patients, the gratification. The other thing is you have a really interesting relationship with the operating team. Like we're in really close quarters for a prolonged period of time. We're all elbow to elbow and lots of conversations occur there. It becomes like a second family. Okay. And so that's, that's something that's difficult to, to leave and the technical satisfaction of what we do. I think like, the other part is what happens when you step away is it, as physicians, it's a huge sense of our identity. Uh, like regardless whether we want to believe it or not, whether we're polymaths or not, we have other interests, etc. Physicians are used to being Dr. So-and-so and, and being thought of that way. So that change in identity, I think, is, is a challenge. And I think that's a real challenge for even many retiring physicians. The second part is when you leave and try to look at what to do next is that for the first time you kind of have zero framework. There's no lattice work. Like in, you get, you know, you decided you're going to get into med school after first year, the second year of med school. And after med school, you got to make some decisions, but there's something called residency that shows up. And after that, there may be a fellowship and then you get a job and the same like rough steps, things that you could put your foot on and, you know, you can navigate up the mountain in different ways, but there's some, some, some place markers. Uh, and then when you leave that, suddenly there's like, everything is a possibility, Open, right? Like yeah. everything's a possibility, yeah. right? Like my friends, oh, you should go do ICU. You know, that'd be great for you or do, do palliative care or uh, you'd be great in government. Why don't you run for politics? Oh, you'd be really good at law. Why don't you right. do law and I do this and the other stuff. There's no framework, yeah. What, 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 what was your process? So like you decided that, hey, you know what, for my health, I'm going to stop, you know, doing uh, surgery. And then like you mentioned, there's all these options to consider for yourself. Um, did you have a process? Like, like what were the first few months like for you? Did you just go off and yeah, do nothing? Like a, or, and then, no, you know, I'm not very good at doing nothing. I'm just <laughs> not good at that. It's just it's like a struggle. I just, my, yeah. Um, so I think it was probably a mental whirlwind, right? To that trying to figure out next steps and looking at multiple possibilities, both in clinical and non-clinical work. Mm -hmm. I continued with my research work that I'm doing um, and uh, I still associated with the University of Calgary research professorship. And did did you that, actually like, try palliative care ICU work or was that, was that even something you you. I mean, I sort of thought about those things and uh, those things would be, you know, I'm not operating, so they could potentially, be, they, they would be feasible. Um, the, you know, and I looked at what I had done and what I wanted to do. And again, it comes down to impact. And I thought that this was a chance to do something, you know, a little bit different here. And, uh, build on some other skill sets and I like taking sort of concepts from different disciplines and merging them uh, together and so I you know I, I sort of I did a wide 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 beard and uh, yeah. 
sort of one thing led to another and I've landed sort of firmly at the intersection of finance and medicine. And uh, it's another new area. So, so, I mean, two things that you're heavily involved in, there's Creative Destruction Lab, and then there's your investment fund in health tech, AOT Health. Um, which one came first for you? So I started with the CDL, the Creative Destructive Lab, and I was doing my own investments. And then one thing led to another, and I sort of set up the fund. Yeah. Gosh. And, and just curious, I mean, Creative Destruction Lab, for those who don't know, I mean, is, in my opinion, probably the um, best... Um, network of entrepreneurs investors operators um in the in the country to be honest in canada now it's very much a global phenomenon um and so um i was curious i mean it's not i don't think they just pick anyone to be a you know a cdl mentor associate or whatnot how did that happen for you like who kind of brought you in there like were you recruited yeah. how did that happen? i think it's interesting you know like again like how you get into go to med school get in cardiac surgery it's about the connecting the dots and uh, you know steve jobs said this famously in his valedictorian lecture at stanford is like you can't connect the dots looking forward but you can looking backwards and uh so with uh, cdl um a friend said i should meet uh chen fong who's mm. one of the founding members of cdl i had no idea why i was meeting with chen fong and having <laughs> coffee with him i was like Okay, one more person. I think it did a lot of that when we were talking about when you know, I was trying yeah. to explore what to do. It's like I had a lot of coffees. And uh, so Chen invited me to attend one day and see what it's like and sort of was very kind. And uh, one thing led to another and we, uh, we ended up starting a fund. Uh, Chen's come on as an advisor to our fund. Three of our first four companies have been CDL companies. So, yeah. It sounded like that was a pretty quick process to to go ahead and start your fund. What was it? Was it really that quick, or did you like how much time did you spend uh, yeah, deciding Super that? quick. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't part of the plan. It just sort of happened organically. I was doing this. People had asked, you know, if they could participate with me, and then it just it became it came together really quickly. Like I can't really even remember that this, you know, when that happened, that decision to start up the fund. But once it got started, it just sort of compounded fast. Yeah. And so, Jane, just, just so like um, I understand, our listeners understand. So, and correct me if I'm wrong, but is it that so you start mentoring for Creative Destruction Lab, you start talking to all these, you know, startups, entrepreneurs. Probably you're kind of more of the healthcare experts. You're talking to more healthcare companies. And is it that you started investing in some of these startups, and then other people around you said, "Hey, Jang, or how do I get in on that?" And then that's what made you go, "Oh, you know what? Maybe I should start a fund so I can help others participate." Is that sort of what happened, or? Yeah, I think two parts of that. So one is historically, I've had people ask me for financial advice, mentorship, who've asked to sort of be part of things that I'm getting into. So that was always there in the background. Uh, secondly, is, you know, the reasons to set up the fund is all about alignment of incentives. And so I think I'm, I'm big on that. And it had to kind of work for, for four parties. And that was, you know, it just sort of came together that way. So for the investors, they get to leverage my thought process, integrity, connections with medicine, understanding of finance, uh, business. Uh, for myself and the team, what really it's about is being able to uh, have a larger size check so that we can learn, so we can be more involved with the company. The more involved we are with the companies, the more we learn, the more we compound knowledge, which is one of my themes. And the more we learn, the more we can 
help other companies in our portfolio or future companies. So that's really the, the win for us. We don't really, we don't charge management fees or anything. So our investors get that. The win for the companies are, is that you get a bunch of people coming together as one name on the cap table, which as you know, is a lot cleaner for the company and decreases the regulatory requirements and the amount required to close deal expenses. And the fourth win is really around the science of medicine. So we're only interested in investing in things that are going to have an impact in, in a meaningful impact in the future of healthcare. So when those four things align, that's what we you know, get involved with. And so that's what the fund did was allowed those incentives to align. Gotcha. And just some, you know, since you graciously gave your time to Ellen and myself, you know, we want to make sure you can promote yourself and, and your fund. So, you know, there could be an entrepreneur listening on the, on the call. So from an IoT health point of view, I mean, obviously it's healthcare technology and, and AI focus, but is there a certain sweet spot for you in terms of either the types of companies, stage of companies, et cetera, that, that you're looking to, to meet with? Yeah, thanks, uh, Josh. So, you know, AIoT Health uh, is our fund, and we, we're really focused on this evolution of machine learning in, in healthcare. I would say that we, you know, the reason to set this up and to choose IoT tech and choose machine learning is that I feel like we're at a second opportunity here with major technologies. So when I started university, there was something called email. And nobody at that time could tell you how we'd be using the internet 30 years from then. People made all kinds of predictions, but nobody really knew that we'd be having this Zoom call today and how it would work and all the different parts that had to go into this. But we wouldn't consider living today without the internet. Uh, and so with machine learning, I feel this is the same way. I don't think we can sit here and actually say how we're gonna be using machine learning in our lives 30 years from now, except that it's an impactful technology that we're all gonna be using. So what we want to be involved with is the development of that technology and be part of that pathway uh, going forward as machine learning is applied in healthcare to help improve healthcare outcomes and help improve precision healthcare. So the companies that we're focused on right now are companies using machine learning in a meaningful way to change outcomes in healthcare and in IoT tech because so much of our world today is digital the way we access finance, banking, uh, movies, et cetera, healthcare is not. Healthcare has been slow to adopt that, and there's a real opportunity. And this IoT tech has a, a real, has potential with virtual care, getting care at home, uh, and uh, develops a lot of data as well. Yeah. So, so, so Jahangir, on that note, I mean, obviously with, with COVID-19, uh, virtual care, is really becoming a priority for a lot of providers and healthcare organizations. And, uh, you know, we, we noticed that on Twitter, and by the way, for those who you want to know your handle, it's at uh, Jahangir Apu. So give him a follow. Um, but you had this really great framework that uh, you shared on Twitter about how you think about virtual care. And so I'll just read out here real quickly. So, you know, you mentioned that there's kind of four components of virtual care in your perspective. One was online interface with, you know, good security and user experience. Two was remote patient monitoring and, and sensors. Third was you know machine learning and analytics of data. And then lastly was was patient engagement and patient reported outcomes. 
Um, so curious to know, uh, you know, if there's anything you'd want to dive deeper on those topics, yeah. particularly in the context of COVID-19 now, um, we'll get your take on it. Yeah, so Versatile is super exciting. And, uh, you know, Toby from uh, CEO of Shopify said something where he said that COVID for certain industries has brought 2030 a decade early. And I think that applies perfectly to virtual care. Virtual care was in its infancy, had a little bit of momentum, but across North America, less than 1% of any patient-physician interaction was virtual. And with uh, COVID, what it's done is it's forced physicians to uh, participate in virtual care. Now, what physicians have learned is that, A, patients love it, B, that physicians can actually do an efficient job, and it's quite good use of their time. And so virtual care going forward in a post-COVID world is going to exist, and it's going to be great for, for patients and their families, right? If mom needs an appointment, you don't need to take a half day off to go with mom to the doctor's office. If that's the other, you can be involved in healthcare. So this is a space that tremendous momentum has come into. And so now the question is, what are the components of virtual care? And uh, the, the first component is having a, a visual interface where you can have a, you know, HIPAA compliant private conversation. So that's, you know, we've got the technology to do that. But then it becomes this issue about how does a physician do a physical exam? And so that's been the thing. So that's a really interesting space. And now that IoT tech comes in, because that's going to be the new physical exam going forward. And if we think about what we do as a physical exam today, there is huge variability in skill set. There are some you know, expert clinicians, but it can't be scaled. And it's so rudimentary in today's day of technology to be percussing and palpating and hearing a soft murmur and making a decision based on that. We're always getting another test. And, you know, one physician can do an exam one way, another one does it differently. So with this IoT technology, we're going to be able to do physical exams remotely. And we're going to be able to do it in a way that is data-driven. And these devices will produce a lot of data where machine learning algorithms can be applied. So that's the third component. And uh, so once you get these wearable devices generating so much data, it's like, how do you use that data well? Right? What so much of the data is not, does not impact care or change decision making, how someone treats heart failure or, or the risk of a stroke. Um, so how do you actually use that data to make meaningful decisions? And then the fourth component is, you know, what you're involved with, which I think is interesting, is uh, you know, digital patient engagement and patient reporting outcomes, because that's a neat space in that I like that space because A, one is now being recognized by physicians and by payers. And physicians have always known that adherence to therapy can improve outcomes. So one of the cool things we can do in innovation is we can look at cool technologies like nanotechnology or 3D printing and come up with awesome ideas to, to make changes. But patient engagement basically says, let's get people doing what we already know works, right? Like people aren't actually doing those things. And there's a reason because they don't, again, alignment of incentives, right? There's a reason. So, you know, we, we tell patients don't smoke and, and that's it or give them a piece of paper. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily translate. So I love the idea of, you know, patient engagement because 
it can take things that we already know and just make it better, right? Remove friction. So this is the other thing, like good businesses take things that are already possible and make it 10 times easier, right? So I think COVID has done that for virtual care because initially the friction was from physicians who said, oh, it's, we can never do this. It's just so much easier for me to schedule my clinics and schedule an appointment and all this stuff. Now that friction has been removed. And with, uh, you know, patient engagement tools, uh, it's a great way to get adherence to therapy and improve outcomes without having to, you know, go to Mars and invent something else. Jan, can I ask you, on topic of virtual care adoption, so, I mean, COVID-19, of course, accelerated that significantly because for many providers and patients, you had no choice. If you wanted to talk to your provider, you had to go virtual in, in this world. Now, presumably, you know, as things start to reopen and, you know, maybe if there's a successful vaccine or just generally there can be more in-person uh, encounters between uh, physicians and patients, um, what, what's your take on you know, how much will stay virtual once we're, we are able to do more things in person again? So I think, again, like the friction has been removed from doing this. So patients are used to it now and physicians are getting used to it. And so the whole space, I think, will, will explode. And I think with different subspecialties in medicine, there'll be different amounts of virtual care. Some will be a lot more, some will be less. There will be a hybrid. So for example, in cardiac surgery, maybe your first pre-op inpatient, you know, first pre-op uh, surgery visit could be an inpatient visit, but then your post-op visits and follow-ups might be virtual. Um, and that might exist for a lot of different specialties where the first time you sort of work on, you build a relationship in person, and then, you know, we're going to see you every year or every six months, and some of those things can be done virtually especially if you can have that data being collected on those patients in the interim time, like managing someone's sugars, et cetera. So, and I think the other, you know, you look at a country like Canada where specialist care is concentrated and the advantage of that is that you deliver better care when you see more patients and have more expertise. Uh, but that means that we have a huge landmass. People are traveling many hours to go to a specialist hospital. So they'll travel from you know, rural parts to the main city, or even if you live in the city, traveling to downtown Toronto is like a, it's a big deal for everybody, right? And so patients will like it. I, I can imagine like, again, you know, for families, uh, families can be a lot more involved in the healthcare of the elderly because they can easily, you know, Josh, you can take half an hour out of your day and join in on a Zoom appointment uh, when, you know, Mom or dad has a clinic visit that you want to be there for, right? And uh, so, and physicians realize this too. Physicians are physicians actually like it when patients are happy, and physicians are seeing how happy patients are. So, virtual care is not going away. It's here. There's, um, you know, reimbursement codes have been instituted by governments to facilitate it. I think they'll stay. Uh, what's going to be interesting is like with anything new, you have different problems to overcome. And so with all these new technologies, you get this concentration of power. So if somebody becomes a real expert in thyroid disease, then everybody wants to see this person. And then what happens to your local doctor, right? Like, and so this person with thyroid expertise does a really slick virtual setup, has a way patients can engage, this and that, sees so many patients, learns so much more about thyroid, his expertise or his or her expertise gets better. And now 
you know, every person sitting in Ontario wants to see this thyroid expert in Quebec or BC. And how do you bill for that? How do provincial governments handle that? What if the doc is sitting in Singapore, right? And you've got like billing issues and things. So there'll be, and is there a, you know, do you need a referral? And is there a limited number of cases? And so there'll be new questions to answer and difficult things to take on. But that's kind of the history of, uh, of all our lives forever is that every time there's a new solution, then we have new problems come up with it and we focus on solutions for those problems. I think you bring yeah. up some really interesting topics. I mean, one is um, the, the idea you had about the fact that for a caregiver, being able to join in on a meeting with your loved one and the physician so much more easily. I hadn't even thought about that, but that's actually true now, um, which is yeah. incredible. But the other thing that came to mind was, well, that also means you could have group consults, right? Instead of having a consult with one specialist and then go to the other one, if you need both in the same room with the patient, you can do it more easily. Um, mm -hmm. And then the one thing that you mentioned that I thought was really interesting at the end was it back to the fact that you're almost democratizing access to the best talent in, in yeah. let's say, healthcare medicine. Yeah. Um, and in my opinion, well, if that forces everyone else to raise the bar of quality of the care they're delivering, maybe that's a good thing. And, and actually, it reminds me, I think it was, Kaiser Permanente, who's one of the who's been one of the most progressive uh, um, health systems with virtual care, and I think part of their goal has been to use virtual care to actually grab more and more market share in the U.S. across many more states. Their view is that if I can do a virtual visit from California to New York and I can get that patient in New York, I'm growing my business, and I can see that working in the U.S. Um, I'm curious in Canada how that will be enabled because right now everything's based on local catchment. Right, most hospitals and providers aren't really serving patients, like you said, across other cities or provinces or territories. And I don't think our payment model necessarily facilitates that in Canada. Um, but I think the U.S. can get very competitive as more and more systems want to use virtual care to kind of grab more market share. Um, that's going to be a very, very competitive field. Um, yeah. So this is this is something that uh, Ajay Agarwal, who's the founder of CDL, uh, professor of economics at Rotman, you know, taught me is that. Uh, this concentration of power when you get these exponential technologies there's only room for a couple people at the top right like when you do a search how many people go outside of google to search who's using the fifth best what happened to you know uh ask jeeves and all those other search engines right uh and so it's this concept of democratization which is very interesting and so with virtual care same thing now in canada we are allowed to bill for interprovincial visits. Uh, there is, you know, issue, like the government has that set up, but they're not set up to deal with large amounts, right? It's for occasional things. And uh, so it, it also brings up this question going forward, like if you have an AI, so what does machine learning do? Machine learning makes predictions. What do physicians do? They make diagnoses. And uh, so, this is another example from Jagger. Well, it's you know, it's so now you have machine learning that can make predictions, which are diagnoses. Now, there's not a lot of room for the 15th best algorithm, everybody wants to talk to, right? So, it brings yeah. up all these solutions bring up future questions, but just because they bring up questions doesn't mean that they're not beneficial for society and that we shouldn't work on them and find solutions to them. Jay, you know, what's funny? So, when I think about machine learning versus, uh, you know, humans in, in medicine. So take, take a human physician, right? 
Um, you know, we're, we're fallible. Humans make mistakes. And if, if Jahangir, you know, as a physician, you made a mistake diagnosing a, a patient issue, people would accept that, right? I think there's a reason, right? You had a hospital that in their radiology department implemented this machine learning model to, you know, read certain images and make certain diagnoses. And if let's say that model had, you know, a 1% or 0.1% error rate and made a mistake and it got found, I feel as if people would be concerned, people would up in arms, but we don't realize that humans make mistakes and we have an error rate yeah. too, but yeah. we would get, I think we would get very mad at an algorithm for making a mistake. Without totally realizing agree. I think we're going to learn faster. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a really interesting point. And uh, it's, I think you're just bang on there is about perception, right? Understanding. And I think there's a difference between understanding what's, you know, on an individual basis versus a population basis. So on a population basis, if a radiologist makes an error 5% of the time or 7% of the time, that may be acceptable to the population. Say that, you know, human error, this, miss that, there's another test, we'll get it this time. But if an algorithm makes an error 1% of the time, that may not be, Right. acceptable but overall if you're treating millions of people what would you rather have right like right. From, a, from a larger population basis you would rather have the person or the technology that makes an error one percent of time <laughs> with potential to further improve for further improvement but there is a human human connection uh so I, that's going to be one of the things that we'll have to one of these issues that we'll have to work out going forward with uh with machine learning and so, you know so the I'm other not, point uh, yes sir go ahead i was just going to say like one of the reasons that's it's been well shown is that of poor healthcare outcomes is inter-physician variability so whether it's a group of physicians in a city a bunch of gi docs working at the same hospital and they treat patients differently or whether it's in a province or across a country when we all see patients we feel like we're the seat of knowledge and they're coming to see us and we've got an opinion on how to treat that patient but so many physicians in the same subspecialties have different opinions and they just look at the data differently and so it's been shown that that interphysician variability actually leads to poor outcomes mm -hmm. right so it's maybe an important topic where we still want to have some autonomy as physicians ability to think individually etc but at the same time, when every single physician thinks that they know best and all of them are saying different things, that's not a scalable solution right. for a healthcare of 30 million people or 7 billion people. Absolutely. I also want to ask you, you're on topic of machine learning. So, I mean, when we think about which specialties might be the most effective soonest, obviously radiology comes up a lot. And, you know, one of the things that that we think about is there's tension obviously between um, specialties and new innovations, especially when innovations could potentially threaten the livelihood of a specialty. Um, and so when you think about if you're, if you're like a radiologist or whatnot, like how would you advise a radiologist to think about the impact, for example, of machine learning on, on the business of radiology going forward? I mean, cause I can imagine some people would intentionally push back because they're afraid their life would be impacted as opposed to embracing the fact that, change is inevitable there's so many industries that have been disrupted by technology and you and better for worse you have to let progress happen and that affects certain jobs frankly um, i mean you look back in history i mean before we had washing machines you know humans had to wash their own clothes and then all the human washers lost their jobs and then obviously we're seeing more recently with things like um you know uber and left and and so someone argued that just normal 
human progress with technology that some jobs get lost. Um, but I'd love to know how you'd advise radiology or other disciplines that are probably going to be most affected by, by machine learning in the short term. I'd probably start off by uh, saying I wouldn't advise because uh, <laughs> most people don't want the advice. <laughs> most people, again, it all boils down to alignment incentives, right? People are incentivized by what they do. They want to protect their fiefdom, right? And they want to make sure that their families are taken care of. They've got issues. They've got things. They've got things they need to deliver, right? So it's about the incentive. So if the, the people asking for advice want to protect that, they're not really thinking about, you know, being open and wanting advice. So I wouldn't force advice. I think your idea of precedence makes a lot of sense. So it's about how people view things. Like, I think people probably throughout history have kept saying, oh, the world nowadays, people nowadays, the things that the young are doing nowadays, right? Like, they've been saying that probably in the 1500, they were probably saying the same thing, right? And we seem to have kept advancing as a society. And uh, if you think about precedence, even in within medicine, when drugs first became available for a disease like tuberculosis, thoracic surgeons felt threatened because there was nothing for them to do. Thoracic surgeons who operate on the lungs would generally operate on tuberculosis. And now you could treat it with a medication. So what are these, these surgeons been noticing? Instead, they found other things to operate on, cancers in the lung, esophagus, they started getting into the heart, and then doing cardiothoracic and so much other stuff. And no thoracic surgeon wants to operate on tuberculosis today. Right, uh, but there's there's always evolution, so it's about trying to figure out where you want to, you know, how you want to adopt the technology, the trends that are coming, and where you can have an impact. I really, you know, a piece of advice like Eric Topol wrote a great book on this last year called Deep Medicine, uh, and he talks about how machine learning in healthcare will actually augment the empathy in the patient-physician relationship. So. What Eric Topol says is that radiologists may be more involved in explaining the results of the scan and showing the scan to patients because an image is so powerful. Like we've learned this with all social media and everything, right? So we don't really discuss, radiologists never discuss the CT finding with the patient. It's just a report, right? So maybe the radiologist will actually discuss, uh, you know, the findings with the patient, but also be more uh, involved in what happens next. You know, should you go see a nephrologist for this kidney stone or should you see a urologist or, you know, we could refer here, there, or the other. So there'll be different paradigms coming out. Uh, again, it's probably like the internet 30 years ago. People kind of predict like how we're going to be using it, but we're going to be using it, figure out how you can use it well. Yeah. It's funny. So I, I, one of my best friends is a radiologist. And when we talk about uh, the impact of AI on radiology, I always tell him, you know what, I, I think it's kind of inevitable. You should go work on AI and radiology so that you can actually help design the solution instead of just, you know, waiting for the world to change in a way that, that you might not want or not be yeah. part of it in any way. What does he say? Or she? Oh, he's interested, but then I think <laughs> he's, he's so busy doing clinical most of the time. <laughs> yeah. uh, Jerry, can I ask you, I want to ask you about chatbots actually, um, because, um, you know, chatbots are obviously a, a platform for leveraging AI to deliver more, you know, virtual, maybe at some point humanistic experiences. Um, and I think what I'm finding when we talk to both patients and providers is that, you know, something like CMSMD where it's more, it's clearly a digital patient engagement. It's clearly not trying to pretend to be someone talking to you, 
patients know it's an application. But with chatbots, we try to make it seem more like conversation. And you know, my sense is that for other industries, let's say customer support, for example, chatbots don't seem that strange. We're okay with it. But my sense is that when it comes to the provider-patient relationship, um, it's not as clear that people are comfortable communicating with the chat god about let's call it sensitive healthcare issues, right? So the idea that would I be okay talking to a healthcare chat bot about cancer or mental mm-hmm. health issues I'm having or things like that. Cause I know companies are trying to tackle it, but I'm not necessarily sold that um, the, the, the lack of humanistic uh, interaction is going to be successful with patients unless you get to the point of a, a Star Trek world where you have a hologram AI that looks and feels like a human physician until we get there. I'm not quite convinced that patients will be able to engage successfully with virtual healthcare assistants that are more like chatbots. Love to get your take on that. Um, and where you see that heading. Do you think that the technology is still early? Yeah, I'll be honest. So the chatbots that I've seen, they don't use natural language, uh, you know, processing. They pretty much use, it's almost like a survey looking like a chatbot. So it would say, hi, you know, you know, dear patient, what information about your colonoscopy are you looking for today? Do you want to look about, learn about A, your bowel prep, B, when your procedure date is, C, you know, complications, and you just pick answers? I mean, it's not natural language, right, at this point? Yeah, exactly. So I'd sort of look at this in a few different frames, maybe. So one is, you know, the technology is great, but it's kind of like where dial-up modem used to be, Mm -hmm. right? It's like you had to plug in, you had to ring and you had a certain amount of hours it could be on and it was slow as hell and just wasn't really seamless right so maybe that technology is there today and where it's going it clearly doesn't replace the role of a physician and a human interaction but can the chatbot equivalent of tomorrow be a mentor be a coach right something that we can't scale as physicians, right? The, like where are physicians' skill sets, you know, best deployed, right? So, or clinician skill sets. And for each individual person to have access to a clinician at all times of the day is not a scalable venture, mm-hmm. right? Like, and it's probably not that interesting for the clinician because clinicians are trying to solve new problems, this, that, the other, right? and take care of the super sick. So there's a real role for it, but you know, will technology get us to the point where there's empathy, where it's actually useful for the patient? Right now, it's this, this friction to using it because most of the time it doesn't work really well, it's kind of annoying, and it's kind of like got a preset set of questions and not really the ones that I'm interested in uh, as a patient. So I think there's role for improvement, but the idea of having a health coach or uh, that's scalable, I think that would appeal to patients. What do you think? Yeah, and I think to your point, I think there's certain workflows that patients will engage with, even though it is a chatbot. So I, I do think, you know, a lot, most of the chatbots are more, more like symptom screeners right now, as I'm sure you've seen. So I think those are, those are okay, because I think patients are receptive to, okay, it's asking me about, you know, my temperature or my pain and, and that as a chatbot I think is pretty reasonable. I think where it gets dicey is, you know, having a conversation with the patient about, you know, their mortality 
and yeah. they're palliative or, yeah. or even I think mental health still, therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy. I think those things which tend to be more conversations, I think un unless you get to a point where you have uh, an AI that you can't distinguish between a human, I think, and I think a lot of those require face-to-face -to -face too sometimes um, for the tougher conversations. Um, but I think a lot of the simpler workflows or data collection or touch points like you've mentioned, I, I think chatbot type experiences could be reasonable. And I think a lot of patients will engage with that successfully. I wonder if it's iterative as well. Like it all depends on what does the patient get out of it? Yeah. If the patient feels and is tangible that I got some benefit out of this interaction, that I'm looking forward to asking this chatbot something else next time, it's so convenient, it works, it's this, it helped me, it saved me from doing this, that, the other, then they will engage more. If the experience is frustrating, doesn't really answer the question, the problem is not solved, then that's, you know, people aren't ready to interact with that. I have been impressed, actually, you know, you brought up mental health. I'm impressed by the amount of software and technology being applied in mental health, sentiment analysis, a whole bunch of interesting ability to scale cognitive therapy, being able to assess people's moods and change treatments based on that. So um, I have been very impressed with the use of technology in mental health patients. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and obviously a big opportunity to, to, to make a difference. So many folks are, are, are dealing with mental health issues that the opportunity to have impact is, is really big. And, and to your point, from a scale point of view, software can play a big role in that. Jahangir, I have to ask, um, you know, now that you're on the other side of the table and you're investing as opposed to working in surgery, uh, but still in the healthcare space, um, what are some maybe valuable insights that you can share with providers who are maybe looking for that similar jump? Sorry, say that again. What do you mean by providers? Like clinicians? Clinicians, physicians, anybody who maybe just has a, a, a misconception as to what it means to work on the business side as opposed to, to work in the clinical world. Yeah, so it's interesting. I guess, uh, you know, business often has a negative connotation in medicine. We're academics. We want to focus on the patient and not talk about money. Uh, we want to do what's right for the patients and we want to be physicians historically have been seats of knowledge which is a very prestigious thing and we want to focus on that right and that's why we do all the training and then we subspecialize in some things so we get huge amounts of deep knowledge uh, what i've learned is that business itself can be a science there's lots of business principles that if we apply them in medicine that we can actually improve efficiency rois etc uh, you know, Alberta Health spends 20 billion on healthcare, and maybe that's five billion more than it spent 15 years ago. But what is the ROI on that extra five billion? Really? Like, I'm sure we're probably delivering better medicine, but how are we measuring that? How are we just deciding where to spend the dollars, right? So, those kind of efficiency processes, uh, business can add a lot to. The other thing is that the innovation is coming from business. Right, especially with the digital innovation, the ability to bring what we're doing in the rest of our world into medicine is is coming from there. So, right. So and I think what about in terms? Go ahead. What about in terms of skills that you've seen transfer over? So now that you're investing primarily, were there any skills and and or frameworks that have stayed consistent? Yeah. So I think um, that's a good question. Um, I would say, you know, from 
it's it's an individualistic thing. So people people have different mental models. For me, it's you know in the past it's been about compounding knowledge and compounding meaningful relationships. And so I think that those are skills that stay the same. I think the ability to make good decisions, to make good decisions fast, to make to keep trying to improve your decision making quality, those are important skill sets as a physician and those stay out the same outside as well. What was the second part of your question was new new skill sets? Uh, yeah, or frameworks that have stayed consistent or or new ones that you've developed since leaving the cardiac uh, surgery world? So those are the ones that stayed consistent. New ones, uh, how would I answer that question? So, okay, I, uh, so in 2019, I, three people, I have three things I've learned from 2019, all from three people I didn't, hadn't met before, so three things. Uh, so one was uh, the, the reward for, for good work is more work. Right. So, uh, you know, if you just continuously do good things and produce well, there is, and when the idea of being more work is not just more work, but it's actually more interesting work, yeah. more things that you want to get into. Right. Uh, and then the second thing is around uh, networking. So people say, well, your net worth is your network. Mm. But the other take on that is that it's actually your network that's willing to help you. So it's about meaningful relationships and who who can you pick up a call and somebody's willing to pick up the phone and talk to you and somebody's willing to help you and whatever it is, whether it's a business deal, a personal issue, whatever it is, at the end of the day, who is willing to help you? If people are willing to help you, it's because they're getting something out of it. Right. right? It's about that alignment incentives again, right? So uh, so I think that's a a new thing that I learned in 2019. And the third thing is uh, I learned was around the easy part of things is actually getting into something. The harder part is figuring out how you're going to exit. So I think most human beings are very happy to get into something. So we're really happy that we got into university or that we got into med school or that we got a job or we got a position at this place or something like that. The challenging part, in, in some essence, it's not easy getting into med school, but the real challenging part is trying to figure out how you want to exit, right? What are the relationships you want to build along the way? How do you want to, what do you want to remember about this? And so that's, uh, I think those are some of the new things sort of mental models that I've learned about. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think that the tough part with, you know, exiting as well is like you said, you formed an identity around that. So that's so integral to who you are up until that point. And then when you leave, it's kind of that unknown space. Um, I'm, I'm curious, because obviously 2019 was a big year for you. Um, during that time, was there a moment that you ever um, realized, like, yes, this was the best decision for me moving forward? Was there a, a specific moment that you remember? I don't know if there's a moment. I think it's some more of a question for me of, uh, you know, figuring out what your sensibilities are and what resonates with you. Uh, I was having a phone conversation with a friend who reminded me about like 25 years ago when he walked into the call room once I was sitting there and looking at the stock pages and he's like you know what are you doing look at the stock pages like we're sitting in the hospital and uh, you know it's uh, it was downtime or whatever and nobody's reading the stock pages back then we don't have stock pages anymore and today this is when we have physical newspapers uh, so I guess there was always my interest in in markets and uh, understanding how business works and the speed of money uh, so I think those things were consistent. 
And you know what I'm doing now, sort of merging finance and healthcare is an exciting area. It's an area where I can have an impact and uh, do something uh, interesting. Yeah. Excellent. So, so Jahangir, I, I know that we're we're drawing on the hour here, but we started this new thing where we kind of want to um, learn a bit more about you through what we call our, our fast five or our lightning round. So um, just a couple like short questions, but really what, what first comes to mind when you hear it. Uh, maybe Ali, do you want to take it away? Sure, yeah. Um, so Jahangir, I know you're big into podcasts, so we wanted yeah. to know what's your favorite podcast uh, or, or, or uh, podcast episode even if you have one. Yeah, so I, I like categorizing things, so maybe not the best for fast. <laughs> I would say so. Favorite podcast, favorite podcast on mental models would be uh, Shane Parrish's Knowledge Network. Yeah. In medicine, I really like Peter Atia, uh, The Drive. The drive. Yeah. 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 You heard? Have you ever listened to that? Yeah, I listen to that one almost every every morning when I oh, I don't God. drive uh, anymore, <laughs> but. But I do listen to that. And one. then in finance, I've been enjoying uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy's Invest Like the Best recently. Yeah. And then in the VC and startup world, uh, I uh, I think I like the greatness with Mike Maples. And uh, yeah, that, that's been good. And then overall, there's another out of the blue, there's uh, three books with uh, Neil Pasricha, which is kind of an interesting mm. perspective on that. Yeah. Excellent. And lots um, of podcasts to listen, but those are all secondary to, to seamless podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, what about uh, advice you would give yourself five years ago? So I, I have a problem with that kind of question and thought process because I'm always sort of so focused on evolution and compounding knowledge. So whatever I know now, I know because of the experiences I had. Right. So if I hadn't had those experiences, I wouldn't be I wouldn't have that knowledge today. So it's kind of like a fake game. I could tell myself all kinds of things that I would do differently if I was 22 or 25 today. But the only reason I actually know those things is because I went through them. So, yeah, yeah. very yeah. true. The, the last question that we have in that past five, it's it's a COVID-19 related question. So we're wondering if you've picked up any new hobbies or activities since the pandemic. And you can't say Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I was, it, I was doing a lot of Zoom anyway before that. But actually, even since you brought that up, one thing that's interesting with Zoom is I've started Zooming with my parents. And yeah. we never did that before. That's and true. so my parents live out of town. And I've always been able to Zoom with them. But I always just talk on the phone. But now we have like a, a once a week Zoom call. And uh, it's it's really interesting to see them. They like it. I really like it. You know, my mom doesn't. They're all social distancing and they're not going out. But she's like, you know, all dressed up. She's got lipstick on. She's like, you know, hair's done and everything. And it's interesting to do that. So yeah, you brought up Zoom. Like that's one of those things. Like COVID has just removed the friction towards doing these things. Like I would do Zoom for professional business calls and stuff, right? But it wasn't so much fun. So what else has changed? I, you know, COVID has definitely changed life for for all of us and i think for us um one of the things i've learned is it's allowed us to figure out what's important to us because that lives were so hectic before and so we realized like you know what are the things that we missed from six months ago and those are the things that matter to us those are the people that are meaningful uh, those are the kind of activities that we really do want to engage with in terms of new things uh, 
we're, we live in Calgary, so we've had access to the mountains. We've been able to go for walks in the mountains. We go as a family once a week, just walking. Um, my wife and I have some more time together where we can go for walks twice a week. I started jogging with my teenage daughters. And that never happened before. That's nice. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's what about you? The family together. What about you, Alan? Uh, about the same, but more family time. My parents actually similar story. You know, we could have zoomed all the time, but but now we're using Zoom all of a sudden. Um, a big thing that that I haven't ever talked about this on the podcast, but I, I'm a big filmmaker. Um, that's my background, and so actually through COVID nineteen, I'm finding out different ways that we can make movies without, you know, with the the physical distance still intact. And so maybe we can do more of a virtual movie and figure out different uh, elements there. So. Yeah, I'll probably yeah, talk I about that. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that disruptive innovation type of thing because, like, I was actually thinking that COVID was an opportunity to catch up on a whole bunch of stuff because there's all this great stuff to watch, but there's not enough time. And I said, said, well, right now there's no new, new, you know, TV series and movies being made because yeah. everything's on hold. So I could, like, it's a good opportunity to catch up. But what you're telling me is there is stuff <laughs> happening. There's, there's a few disruptors out there that are figuring it out. Yeah. Uh, and then the the last activity that Josh and I are both doing is this podcast. That's kind of uh, a new thing that was spurred oh, on. And, yeah. Story. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We've been talking about it for years. So. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, so Jahangir, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Um, I'm looking at the time. We're, we're obviously a little bit over, so we, we want to wrap it up. But did want to thank you again for for taking the time out of your day and, and being on the show and sharing a ton of life experience with, with all of us and, and all of our viewers. Really do appreciate that. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. And thanks so much for organizing this. Thanks, Jan. You appreciate right. it. Cheers. Be well.